Welcome back to the Recess X podcast. This week, we're talking about the awake fiber optic intubation with Dan Patino. Have you ever had a patient who you need to intubate, but you don't want to paralyze them, sedate them, do the RSI, you need to keep them awake? Think about patients with DKA or severe salicylate toxicity. I'm talking about situations where it is just too difficult to intubate your patient using standard RSI techniques. Luckily, we have Dan Patino who is talking to us about this technique in detail. So the next time you have a patient who you need to intubate this way, you are ready to go. This audio was taken from the RecessX Reset Conference last October in Philadelphia. And it's one that I keep referring to over and over again because Dan does an excellent job at taking us through. So let's listen to Dan Patino talk about the awake fiber optic intubation. So our standard approach in the ED when performing an intubation is to perform RSI, right? So we're going to use a sedative and a paralytic agent. But there's certain clinical scenarios where using RSI medications can be very detrimental to our patients, can cause rapid episodes of desaturation, hemodynamic instability, and even peri-intubation cardiac arrest. And this is where awake intubation comes into play. So one of the most common questions I get asked about this procedure is, who's a good candidate, right? Who should I be performing this procedure on? And there's two things that you need to consider right off the bat. Number one is that you've already made the decision that the patient needs to be intubated, but for one reason or another, you're anticipating that this is going to be a difficult intubation. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in the next couple of slides. And number two is that your patient should ideally not be an extremist, right? So this isn't a procedure for a patient who is severely agitated, someone who's pericode or profoundly unstable, as you need time to perform this procedure, right? And ideally, you want to have someone who is somewhat cooperative in order to maximize your chances of success. So how do we define a difficult airway? How do we categorize it? So I like to divide these patients into two groups. Your first group is your patients with an anatomical difficult airway. So the classic example here is someone who has severe angioedema, who has a large tongue, and as a result has an airway obstruction. But also think about those patients who have other space-occupying lesions like a large submandibular abscess, someone with a tracheal mass, someone who's undergone extensive radiation to the neck and as a result has structural changes. And then also think about it in those patients who have a body habitus where the actual intubation is, could be technically difficult. The next group of patients are those with a physiologic difficult airway. These are a little bit more controversial. Some people may argue that these patients are a little too sick to undergo awake intubation, but I disagree. I think these patients actually benefit the most from this procedure. Now, the classic example that I think here is someone who has worsening acidosis, who's starting to show signs of respiratory muscle fatigue, and you're concerned that they're going to lose their airway relatively soon. So these are your patients with bad COPD who are getting more hypercarbic, who are getting acidotic despite being on BiPAP, despite getting NEBS. Um, also think about your patients with bad metabolic acidosis, right? You really don't want to intubate these patients, but if they're starting to show signs of respiratory muscle fatigue and you're concerned they're going to lose your airway, this is where you consider awake intubation. If you keep these patients breathing spontaneously, this can be very beneficial, right? Paralyzing these patients and inducing an episode of apnea can worsen your acidosis, and you're taking away that little bit of a respiratory drive, respiratory compensation that they have left, 
And as a result, you will worsen the acidosis and increase your chances of peri-intubation arrest. All right, so now let's move on and talk about how to actually perform the procedure. So the first thing you want to do is you want to prepare the room, right? You want to have all of the equipment, all of the staff that you need at the bedside in order to maximize your chances of success. So make sure that your patient's on the cardiac monitor, get supplemental O2, make sure all of your airway equipment is at the bedside, get your primary, your backup, your rescue devices, including any surgical airway equipment. And then have all of the medications that you need ready, including RSI medications, in case you run into any issues and you need to change strategies. The next thing that you want to do is you want to dry out the mouth, right? So by drying out the mouth and limiting the amount of secretions that you have, you're going to maximize your visualization of the vocal cords. But this is also going to increase the absorption of whatever topicalizing agent that you're going to administer. I like to use an anti-sialagog like glycopyrrole. So 0.2 milligrams IV is usually sufficient. But remember to give this agent about 15 to 20 minutes prior to the procedure as it takes time to actually start working. The other thing that you can do is you can take some gauze and dry the mouth. And I also like to give a small dose of an antiemetic at this point to prevent any peri-intubation nausea. The next step and probably the most important is topicalization, right? If you do this well, the procedure should go very smoothly. The first thing you want to do is your lidocaine lollipop. So here you're going to use 4 or 5% lidocaine ointment or jelly, and you're going to put a small amount at the end of a tongue depressor. And you're going to take that tongue depressor and put it over the posterior tongue. The moisture of the oropharynx is going to melt the ointment and cause the lidocaine to seep down into the posterior tongue and into that hypopharynx, blunting the gag reflex and topicalizing all of those areas. Next, you want to atomize some lidocaine. So there's a lot of ways to do this. I like to use 4% lidocaine. About 5 cc's is usually sufficient, but if you're going to use a lower concentration of lidocaine, you're probably going to need a little bit more volume. Again, lots of ways to do this, but I like to use a, a laryngotracheal atomizer. So essentially, this is just a long piece of tubing that's malleable, and it has an atomizer at the end. And with this, you can spray that posterior pharynx, the hypopharynx, and then you can bend the malleable tube and aim it down into the vocal cords to get all those periepiglottic structures. If you're going to perform a nasal intubation, you also want to atomize the nose, right? 4% lidocaine is a good option here. Usually 1 cc is sufficient. I like to spray it on each nostril just in case I need to switch sides during the procedure. And then also spray oxymetazoline, right? So this is going to provide some vasoconstriction to prevent any sort of iatrogenic epistaxis during the procedure. Okay, so a brief word on analgesia and anxiolysis. So if you topicalize your patient well, it is unlikely that you're going to need any additional medications. But there are some situations where your patient might be a little anxious, feel a little uncomfortable. So you can consider medications, and this is where I like to use ketamine. So small aliquots, I usually give 10 milligrams IV. I have given a second dose, but if you're requiring higher and higher doses, you have to think that maybe this patient is not a good candidate for awake intubation, or you just haven't topicalized the airway appropriately. 
All right, so finally, you're gonna move on to perform your intubation. And you can go one of two ways, either the oral or the nasal route, and this depends on the clinical scenario. If you're performing an oral intubation, you can do laryngoscopy, and I usually recommend video laryngoscopy, again, to maximize that view of the vocal cords. You can also perform this with a fiber optic scope. And if you're doing this, I recommend using an intubating oral airway like a Berman or an Ovisapien tube for a couple of reasons. One, this is going to move your tongue and those soft tissues out of the way, but it's also going to provide a direct pathway for that bronchoscope to go down into the vocal cords. And then it'll also serve as a bite guard to protect your equipment. If you're performing nasal intubation, I recommend that you use a fiber optic scope. You should not be doing this blindly unless you really don't have a scope available. And like Haney said, we'll have a workshop later this morning as well as this afternoon where you guys will get um, a chance to practice with the scopes. And then finally, once you've intubated the patient, make sure that you put them on end title to confirm placement, get an x-ray to confirm that it's in the appropriate position, and then provide analgesia as needed. Thank you.